I used to be terrified of flying because my dad had panic attacks with flying. So I, and then one day I was flying to the UK and I was seated next to a pilot who was, you know, like in a jump seat. And he explained everything the whole way. And I got off that plane and I was no longer afraid of flying. And that's the power of information. Wellness is a $4 trillion business. I mean, compounded hormones, I think are $25 billion. I'm not turning any of that money into research and development. And that's the thing that I think people don't understand. They think supplements are tested. They think that, you know, I, I tell people literally, I could design Dr. Jen's vaginal supplements and I could put my branding on it and I could literally scoop dirt from my backyard and sell it and that would be legal. Welcome back to another episode of The Proof. I'm Simon Hill, your show host. Today's guest is Dr. Jen Gunter. Jen is an obstetrician and gynecologist and the two times New York Times bestselling author of The Vagina Bible and The Menopause Manifesto. In recent months, I've dedicated a couple of episodes to women's health, discussions with Professor Susan Davis. And in the past few years, episodes on PCOS, endometriosis, and other women's health topics with Dr. Gemma Newman and Dr. Neetu Bajekal. I've done this because I think women are underserved when it comes to high-quality information that they can trust and use to improve their health. While it's very pleasing to see that in recent years, women's health has catapulted into the mainstream wellness conversation, there is, of course, a lot of misinformation and disinformation. This is a vulnerable population, people who are often willing to spend a lot of money to improve their health. And with that comes all sorts of unfounded claims and marketing of products that haven't been tested using the scientific method. It's this topic, disinformation and misinformation, that forms the center of today's conversation, something that Dr. Jen Gunter is well known for taking head on. We cover yeast infections, birth control, menopausal hormone therapy, and a whole lot more. Before we get into the episode, a quick reminder to please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning in from. Your support is truly greatly appreciated and enormously important to this show finding its way into the ears of more people. And now, my conversation with Dr. Jen Gunter. Dr. Jen Gunter, it's a pleasure to be doing this. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure doing this today. I think your advocacy for, for women's health is exceptional, second to none, really. Um, I'm interested in kind of starting with where that comes from and, and why you're interested in, in specializing in gynecology in the first place. Right. So I, uh, I went into gynecology mostly because when I was in medical school, all of the lectures in gynecology were given by men and that annoyed me. And I thought, you know, this was, this was the eighties, I'm a bit older. And I, you know, this was like the sort of like the peak of kind of like the women's lib or sort of the end of the, I guess the second wave of feminism. I think I might have my waves confused, but I just thought that it was, it, it just annoyed me that, that there was this sort of absolute lack of sort of, you know, diversity in the lectures. And it wasn't that anybody giving the lectures were bad or that they were bad people in like a me too creepy kind of way. It just really irritated me. And I just thought, 
women deserve the best and I'm the best. So I'm going into OBGYN and that's kind of how it started. Amazing. And so today, do you sort of split your time? Are you still seeing patients? I know that you're, you spend a lot of time online um, <laughs> debunking misinformation and, and sharing a lot of incredible information through your blog. So you're obviously writing. You handed me a copy of one of your books, The Menopause Manifesto. Um, so what does, a, what does a kind of week look like for you at the moment? Yeah, well, I'm sort of able to bend time to my will, I suppose. And yeah, I do. I still have a clinical practice. I see patients anywhere from three to four days a week. It just depends if I'm operating that week or not. Uh, and then, um, and then I spend my you know, free time, you know, writing and uh, either books or debunking information or you know pieces that other, you know, other places have asked me to write. You know, for like you know. New York Times or Glamour or other, you know, other kind of sites. And so, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time doing that and it's, it, I, I really like it. So I guess that's why I do it. Right. I was thinking this morning, you must be pleased to see women's health um, enter, I guess, mainstream wellness conversation. And there's a lot more p people talking about it. But at the same time, I get the feeling that there's also a sense of frustration so is it kind of mixed emotions for you when you think about the conversation around women's health well i mean i think everything's a lot of things are double-edged swords and we absolutely need to have more conversations and there needs to be people need to have more information about their bodies and how their bodies work and I am never one for curtailing information, but the problem is, is the access to information has come to us more rapidly than education. You know, facts are boring and misinformation is fun and interesting and it sounds truthy. And I in no way feel that we should be curtailing access to information, but I just think that at the same time, we have to be very wary of making sure that we're trying to get people educated so they can use that information. I mean, the internet's an amazing library. Everybody should be able to use it for whatever they want, be it book a flight or, you know, look up the latest medical therapy. But I just think that we need to, at the same time, be focusing efforts on education. How's the conversation, I guess, changed over the decades? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, when I was a resident, it was people coming in with what they saw in People Magazine or Reader's Digest, which I don't even know if it's still around. And the Reader's Digest used to have these things like sleep with an onion in your sock to prevent warts. And you know what? I still see that myth on. <laughs> What's with onions and garlic? I have a question later for you about garlic. I think you know where I'm <laughs> I think I know exactly where you're coming from. I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of these are these sort of I would say naturopathic old timey cures that have been around for so long and they've just, they sound familiar. You know, when things sound truthy, you know, we all misinterpret familiarity as accuracy, right? So if we've heard something before, we're more likely to believe it. And so I think they're really sticky. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that we're, we've moved from, a slower dissemination of misinformation to just a more rapid rate, I, you know, and more permutations and combinations. I think the the basic issues are the same, but the internet makes everything spread like wildfire. Have you heard of Brandolini's Law? Um, I have. I can tell you what it is, but I'd probably get it right on a multiple choice test. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. It's. I think it speaks to 
probably a, a lot of what you do. It's that the amount of energy required to create misinformation is an order of magnitude less than the amount of energy required to refute it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when you're not constrained by facts, you can really spin quite the yarn. Mm. So what are the greatest challenges that you come up against when you're trying to correct things and put better information out and help explain why maybe some of those things that although have been around for a while and are sticky are, are perhaps not that evidence-based? Well, I think one of the issues is a lack of general understanding of basic biology and that, you know, that people have a misunderstanding, for example, maybe of what menopause is or how the menstrual cycle works. And so just like I probably have a misunderstanding of how airplanes fly, like it's totally not my field. Like I'm sure what I think is completely wrong. <laughs> uh, so so I think that people come to it with a place that they, they're unable to critically evaluate it in a way that they would want to. And I think that we're just seeing more and more the volume. And so this repetition of the the disinformation, people don't have a time to stop and digest it. And so I think that's part of the issue. And we all mistake repetition for accuracy. You just use the term disinformation. If someone's wondering, what's the difference between disinformation and misinformation? Yeah. So misinformation is, I would say, a mistake. And it's not done willfully. Like someone's, someone passes on some information about the menstrual cycle and they're not an expert and they weren't intending to do harm. They, they thought they were correct. Uh, disinformation is willful or someone who should know better. So for example, if a physician's doing it, that's disinformation. They should know better. Or if it's to sell a supplement, that's disinformation. What are the real world consequences of disinformation or misinformation? Well, I mean, I, I think we all saw it with, you know, vaccines and COVID and I, it's, we see it in so many avenues of health, be it, you know, I might talk to someone just about taking ibuprofen to reduce the amount of bleeding they have in their menstrual cycle, right? Sometimes people don't want to take a daily medication. I'm like, you can take ibuprofen for three or four days, reduces blood loss by 30%. I heard those medications cause ulcers. I hear they're dangerous. I hear they're bad. And because you might not have really digested that information when it was flying past your page, you know, you you then sort of, I guess, assign a tag to it in your brain. You know, we all do that. It's a good thing. It's a bad thing. And so we're spending a lot of time on doing that information in the office. And so I think there's a lot of hesitancy. People stop medications early. They're afraid to take therapies that are good evidence-based. Um, there's fear of, of doing things that we know are helpful. And I think also a misunderstanding of risks. You know, everything has a risk associated with it, be it flying in an airplane, be it taking a medication. And I think we all have a difficult time parsing risks and the way misinformation and disinformation spreads on social media, I think really plays into our uniquely human inability to put risk in perspective. How do you go about getting through to someone who seems to have encountered a lot of misinformation and is quite resistant? Because I imagine in clinic, this is no easy task because yeah. if you've taken on one or a number of ideas and and you've had those ideas for a long time and perhaps your friends and family hold them, you're in a community that holds them, 
it's not an easy feat to kind of change someone's view. Yeah. So, you know, in the office, it's obviously a very different thing than than being online. And in the office, what I'm looking for is to become a source of trust for a patient. And unless it's, you know, something urgent, as in, my gosh, if you take that medication that somebody gave you, this is really, really, really serious. You could, something really bad could happen to you. I mean, an example I'll give is pennyroyal, which is uh, recommended as an abortifacient. It's toxic in every dose. It's associated with liver failure, with death, you know, so uh, taking something like that off the table that it's not like an urgent situation. People recommend that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they do. And and those people should go to jail as far as I'm concerned because it's natural and it's old timey, right? So, um, so as long as it's not one of these urgent situations, I think what I'm looking for is common ground. And really what I always retreat to is I say, okay, well, let me give you some information about the subject. I also give people sources that I consider online to be good places to go to get other information about that. And so I say, well, here are three other places I'd recommend. And why don't you think about it and tell me what you think? So I think a lot of doctors get into the position where they feel they've got to change somebody's mind on the spot. They've got to do something right in that. But just making a connection and getting somebody to trust you is doing something. The, the natural thing is super common. Yeah. Why, why do we fall into that trap of assuming that something that's natural is automatically beneficial and better than another option that perhaps is not quote unquote natural, but has been tested in clinical studies? Well, somebody probably more eloquent than me and who knows about religious studies would probably be able to do it a better justice. But I think it's related to this long-standing belief in our culture, thousands and thousands of years, that God is natural, being a divine state is what we want to achieve, and that we're searching for the divine, we're searching to sort of to replicate that. And, you know, I'm sure if you listen to old-timey lectures or not lectures, but, you know, um, teachings from priests and all different religions. And I'm, you know, I'm no religious scholar. There is a lot of that conflation with, you know, God is in nature. Everything is. So I think it's, that has sort of gradually evolved into where we are now. So I think it's one of those things that's almost in our DNA in, in many cultures, probably not in every culture, but in many cultures. What, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, but What's the main source of disinformation or misinformation? Is it coming from health professionals or is it coming from people that are unqualified on the internet? Well, I don't know if I can say there's a main source. I mean, I think there's many sources. I think there's people who are out there sharing information that they really think is right. They really think is good and they just don't know. And then there's people out there who are really willfully spreading disinformation or they think that they're experts and they're not and they're making a lot of money off of it, be it they're selling supplements or they're selling a $1,000, you know, concierge, you know, practice and or they're, you know, selling hormone pellets, you know, so I think there's that. Sometimes I think about kind of where these different treatments, um, how they get traction, and in speaking to people, it seems like a number of people hold the view that they tried Western medicine, that they saw a few different doctors, maybe they even spent some money and some time, and based on their expectations, they didn't get the results that they were after. 
And then that sort of opens the window for seeking alternative treatments. Do you do you see that happening quite a bit? Yeah, and I think that's actually a big fault of of medicine because many doctors do a very bad job of explaining how a treatment should actually work. So one of my subspecialties is seeing people with very complex vaginal infections. And complex could be they've they've had multiple different therapies that haven't worked or they have something that's really uncommon. And the first thing I do when I prescribe a treatment is I lay the expectation about when I expect someone to start to feel better. Because people take a pill and they assume they're going to feel better the next day or the next or two days later. I mean, if you nobody told you otherwise, why would you think differently? And so I'll say, I don't expect you to be 50% better for seven days. And I don't expect you to be 98% better for 14 days. And that's why we're going to have a follow-up at 21 days so we can see how things are doing. And I think one of the big problems with medicine is it's very well designed for acute care. You break, you break your leg, you, you sprain your ankle, you've got a sore throat, you give a treatment and it gets better. But this idea where treatments where you need to come back or need some kind of follow-up, we're not really well designed for that, explaining the follow-through. And so I think that's where a lot of medical practice actually is um, does a disservice to people. That whole follow-through is missed. Do you think it's possible that some of the answers lie outside of Western medicine? I think that's what someone who's pushing back on this conversation might be saying. Well, so I don't, I believe in medicine. I believe that there is evidence-based medicine and there are scientific principles. And I think that um, when people say that, so there's two ways to approach that. So I would push back and say, well, you know, sure, Reiki is not a, a something in medicine. It was invented in the 1900s and nobody's been shown it works. So, you know, if you have a new therapy, you should be able to show that it works by the standards that we accept in medicine. And so are there things we don't? Of course. I mean, you know, when I was in medical school, we hadn't sequenced the DNA. We, we, we didn't know what the human genome was. The idea that we would have, that we would know when I was in medical school, that HPV causes almost all cervical cancers, and that we could have a vaccine for that, that would have seemed like magic. And yet here we are 35 years later with that magic, but it's actually science. Takes the method, scientific method. Right. So there's always, I'm always open to the idea that there could be a whole level of something that we don't understand about the body because we didn't know about the microbiome when I was a medical student, right? So, but you should be able to replicate that with different different groups of researchers should be able to replicate those findings. We should be able to show that with the scientific uh, method. And what if someone said, okay, I hear what you're saying, and that sounds very reasonable, but these industries, areas of healthcare, whether it's Reiki or a herbal supplement, they don't have the money that big pharma has. <laughs> they sure do. <laughs> they have they have all the money. I mean, wellness they is have all the they money. have all wellness is a 4 trillion dollar business. I mean, uh, just you know, I just something like co- compounded hormones I think are 25 billion dollars. Not turning any of that money into research and development. And that's the thing that I think people don't understand. The general public is shocked generally when I explain about how they think supplements are tested. They think that, you know, I, I tell people literally I could design Dr. Jen's vaginal supplements and I could put my branding on it and I could literally scoop dirt from my backyard and sell it and that would be legal. 
You could literally put dirt in it. And that's what people don't understand that, you know, there's no batch testing, there's no outcomes. And these people are making money. I mean, I just wrote about the other day this absolutely scammy supplement that the manufacturers or the the makers call a liver condom. I saw that. Yeah. Is that for alcohol? Yeah, it's going to protect you from having a hangover and it's going to protect you from having toxic effects of alcohol in your liver, which is, of course, wrong and horrific. Uh, that it wouldn't, of course, wouldn't do that. But very attractive. To very attractive. Teams. And advertise with all these young, attractive people, mostly women, drinking, you know, with the implications of drinking heavily and you can party hard and recover fast with the supplement. The guys who make it claim they're going to be on track to make more than $10 million in their second year. Completely untested. So again, when you're not bound by the truth, you can say whatever you want. You mentioned comp compounded hormones i want to put a pin in that and make sure we come okay. back to that <laughs> so someone's browsing the internet or listening to podcasts they're going to come across disinformation and misinformation that's not going to change right absolutely <laughs> so what can they do to kind of shield themselves to be more discerning to see the red flags so that at least when they're coming into contact with this information, they can understand that that information is likely not not going to be something that they want to follow if, if they're interested in improving their health. So it's really a challenging thing because, as I mentioned earlier, we all mistake repetition for accuracy and our social media feeds are a 24-7 repetition machine. I mean, it feeds the algorithm. I, you know, I start following somebody who, uh, you know, is in fitness and all of a sudden all these fitness accounts are, you know, now promoted to me, right? So I think that the first step is to curate your social media feed, to try to pay attention to that. Many of us mindlessly add people and follow to really curate. And when you see new information, to really step back and say, I need to validate that with another source. And that's a big problem, right? We are in an influencer society, and that's because you have influence, right? And so to sort of step back and say, well, how is how is this person backing up what they're saying? And uh, is there another source that's validated that I can find that will say the same thing? And so I think those are a couple of things to think about. I also tell people, you're not going to change anybody's mind on social media. So don't get into these slug fests where you're going back and forth, back and forth, because one, that just boosts engagement for the bad post. And two, it's aggravating for you. You know, you only have so much personal energy. Right. So if, if you're not aiming to change someone's mind, what's your goal with the information you put out? Yeah. Well, my goal is to put the information out there so people can say, hey, here's a valid source. Everything's always fact-checked that that people can come to me and they'll say, well, everything I say is backed up by the North American Menopause Society, the American College of Obstetric and Gynecology, or Society of Obstetricians of Gynecology of Canada. These are what the studies say. This is how we how we come up with these conclusions. And, you know, I think that that it's obviously challenging because people can see a naturopath who will do the exact same thing. And they'll say, oh, well, the, the College of Naturopathic Medicine says this or says that. And it can be very challenging to explain to somebody how that information is actually garbage um, because those studies are maybe in predatory journals or they're low quality or they're you know very low quality observational or cross-sectional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever had pushback 
around any of the position statements. I've I've shared I think the the NAM statement mm-hmm. before and some others. And one bit of pushback that I frequently get is, well, these are scientists and academics who are tied to pharmaceutical industries. So, do does the pharmaceutical industry influence these best practice guidelines? I would say no, because the number of people involved, so many of the people involved have no industry um, associations, first of all. Secondly, the idea that you can get 50 experts to agree on something means the evidence has got to be pretty good. And the data that we use for a lot of these studies are really not pharma-driven. So in most of them are funded by the NIH and funded by other sort of, you know, governmental organizations. And so usually the people saying that are people who are doing that themselves. So there are people in the supple- who are promoting supplements or who are promoting bioidentical compounded hormones. And so there are people who are actually profiting directly. It's just in the United States, you can look me up on dollars for doctors and you can see that I don't take a penny. But you can't look up a naturopath and you can't look up supplement money that doctors get and you can't look up those things. Right. How do the the guidelines work, I guess, in this country for doctors? Do you have to practice within the guidelines? Is Is that actually like a regulation? Because I see different interpretations of this and I've seen some people sort of throw out this quote of, evidence-based but not evidence-bound. And they they use that to say, those are the guidelines, but I've got my own personal experience and I'm working with a patient who's an individual and so I'll tailor things to them. How do you think about that? So that sounds like a willful misinterpretation of how we practice medicine. So of course there are people who fall outside of the bounds of guidelines, which are there for the majority of people. However, if you actually read through the 2020 NAMS position statement on menopausal hormone therapy, it's pretty inclusive. This isn't a five-paragraph summary statement. This goes through things in detail. And almost always when I see people saying those things and I check what they're doing, they're doing something that I would consider to be wildly concerning. So I think it really depends. So I'll, you know, I'll give an example that's not menopause related, but it's a a pretty easy one. I, um, because of my subspecialty practice with vaginal uh, health conditions, I often see people who have refractory recurrent yeast infections with resistant strains. We have no guidelines for that, right? So I have to use the sum of my clinical experience I have to use the information that we have to come together to come up with a best plan for this patient. But for the majority of people, for example, with menopausal hormone therapy, that's not the situation they're in. They're not in this situation. There's clearer data. Right, exactly. And often in that situation, what I see is people who've been given false promises about hormones. So for example, they've been told that hormones are going to make them feel like they're young again. They're going to make them, you know, feel like the sky is blue and everything's perfect. And of course, if that's what you're sold, then you're going to think that those guidelines don't work for you because you didn't get that outcome. It doesn't fix all your problems. It does not fix all your problems. Damn. It doesn't. I know, right? Um, darn those ethics. <laughs> Going back to being discerning and and like red flags something else i often look for is how open is someone to changing their mind have you like through over your career so far 
do you have any examples of things that maybe you've changed your your view on or evolved your ideas have evolved as new science has come out um well if the new science is good i absolutely change so i think that that's so i think what happens is people conflate the change that we get with science with kind of changing your mind and of course i mean Here's an example. When we first heard about COVID, nobody thought we needed to worry about masks because it was, you know, we thought it was something you're going to catch by touching. And then once we got new data, we changed. And the example I always give people is, okay, imagine you're on an airplane and your pilot's like, okay, we're, we're flying from San Francisco to LA and it's going to take us one hour and 10 minutes and skies are blue and we're going to be there, you know, and it's going to be great. And then 20 minutes into the flight, the pilot says, oh my gosh, there's this massive storm that's rolled into LA. We're going to have to divert and go around and it's going to take us two and a half hours to get there now. You wouldn't say, we were supposed to get there in an hour and a half drive through that. You know, why did you change your mind? You'd say, oh my gosh, my pilot got new information and they were open enough to change their mind to that. So I'd always like to say that I, you show me the evidence, I'm on board, but you got to show me the evidence. I love your pilot analogies. I've heard a few of them. I think you might be a pilot in another life. <laughs> I'm actually obsessed with flying. I'm actually, I used to be terrified of flying. Like I'd be on the plane the whole time just like, oh my God, like this is this is it. I'm going to like panic attacks. All Because my dad had panic attacks with flying. So, I, And then one day I was flying to the UK. I was, you know, this was like eight or nine years ago. And I was seated next to a pilot who was, you know, like in a jump seat. And he explained everything the whole way. And I got off that plane and I was no longer afraid of flying. And that's the power of information. I love your analogy of the Maverick pilot as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who cares? We're going through that storm, damn it. <laughs> There's a few different sort of topics that I want to, to dig into. Um, some of the things that you speak about quite regularly and written about in your book, given that you just mentioned yeast infections, maybe we start there. <laughs> is is yeast infections an area where you feel there is a lot of misinformation? Oh, yeah. I mean, and some of this is, you know, we're just, we're still learning new things about the microbiome. So I would say that what I believed about a yeast infection when I graduated from residency in 1995 is completely different than what I know today. Um, and that's fantastic. It's great that I know more. Uh, and, you know, the technology to know what we know now wasn't available then. So it's really cool when new technology comes out. So yeah, I mean, I think that part of the problem is vaginal symptoms are, you know, one of the number one reasons women will seek gynecological care. And there's a lot of disinformation. It's also something that's often dismissed. Oh, it's just an irritation or this, that. And people, people don't get the time spent with them that they need to really go through the symptoms. Right. So what is... A yeast infection. So a yeast infection is an overgrowth of the yeast that is almost always certainly normally there to begin with. And why that happens, we don't really know. So if if I stopped 100 women walking down the street and just did a culture from their vagina, 20% of them would have yeast at any given time. And if I followed those women for a whole year, by the end of the year, probably 80 to 90% would have had yeast at any one point, but they have no symptoms. So it's this shift between the yeast that's normally there and in harmony with the whole microbiome to sort of this overgrowth of yeast. And that can happen for a variety of different reasons. And what are the main symptoms that someone would experience? Vaginal itching, vaginal burning would be the big common ones. Pain with intercourse, a feeling of dryness, 
People mistakenly believe that a white discharge is associated with yeast infection, but it's actually a very unreliable sign. And so, and part of the reason we have this misinformation is just talking about vaginal health is difficult. You know, people are made to feel shameful. The number of women I see who think that it's abnormal to have vaginal discharge is still astounds me, but that's the power of shame. As a yeast infection sexually transmitted? No. Uh, yeast isn't sexually transmitted, although there is some belief that um, biofilms, which are sort of these complex ways bacteria and yeast can sort of avoid capture, I'm not explaining it well, but that's kind of a, in the gist, that um, that they can possibly be carried back and forth on a penis. And so, so there may be some factors related to intercourse that can change the environment in a way for some people um, that can increase the risk, but it's not sexually transmitted or in the way that we would think. And how would a diagnosis be made? So we actually know that diagnosing yeast without seeing somebody is very unreliable. So there are about only 30% of people, 30 to maybe 50% of people who think they have a yeast infection actually will, which is pretty bad, right? Like that's flipping a coin. So, you know, we want to look under the microscope and see yeast. We want to see classic signs on exam, inflammation, edema, uh, a positive culture. There's also um, DNA-based testing, um, molecular diagnostics, so be a variety of different ways. Once somebody knows those symptoms are for them a yeast infection, then probably repeated visits aren't necessarily needed for diagnosis as long as it's infrequent. But if somebody's getting three or more infections a year, they definitely need to be seen. Right. So is that common once you've had a yeast infection once? you're more at risk of having it again in the future? Um, not for probably a single one, but there. if we look at overall, you know, more than half the population has had a single yeast infection, about 5% of people will get recurrent infections. And we just don't understand why that is. So I think you said 30 or 50% of the time it's not a yeast infection. So what else could it be if not yeast infection? Sure. So a lot of times, because again of our cultural shame, People use the word vagina to describe everything, to their vulva as well as inside their body, which is the vagina. So a lot of times when people call in and say they have a, a yeast infection, what they mean is they have a vulvar itch. So that's what's really important to ask people where the symptoms are. And so a lot of times it's either atopic dermatitis, so irritation from a product. Uh, people can get eczema on their vulva. They could also be bacterial vaginosis, which is a vaginal, um, another vaginal infection. Uh, trichomonas less likely, but it's a sexually transmitted infection. Um, and those would be like the most common things that we would see. There's also skin conditions that can produce vulvar irritation and even vaginal irritation. So it's a wide variety of things. Right. So what does treatment look like once it is diagnosed as a yeast infection? Because this is where I hear yeah. all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and I read a blog of yours talking about um, inserting a clove or two into the vagina, yeah, yeah. I think. Um, yeah, which seems like something that you probably don't want to try. Um, where... Where's what is the sort of evidence-based best practice treatment for a yeast infection? Yeah, so the evidence-based best practice treatment is an azole, either a topical, which you know we might know as myconazole or you know terconazole or um, you know any one of the azoles that's available over the counter, clotrimazole, um, and or an oral one, fluconazole. Those are those are kind of the first line therapies, and uh, they work equally well. 
Um, one's not better than the other. I think people often think that the oral is going to be better. It's not. Um, it's just personal preference. Um, you know, some people dislike the mess of a topical, uh, and other people dislike the idea that they're putting something in their whole body where they only need a treatment in the vagina. So it's great to have choices. And that's the evidence-based treatment. You'll get, you know, a 93 to 95% success rate. Wow. Yeah. So where does this idea about garlic come from? <laughs> well, I think it's, again, one of those old-timey things. You know, I think people forget that before germ theory, people just, like, did stuff. You know, they're like, uh, you know, they, you know, they used to do vaginal, I mean, they'd put vaginal arsenic, they do cold water douches and plug the vaginas, all kinds of like nasty old timey therapies from before we actually knew things. And, you know, I think garlic's a carryover from that. You'll see it in many, many different sort of old time recipes, if you will, from when medicine and religion were basically kind of the same thing. So have any studies looked at that? Uh, I don't think so. Um, not, you know, Allison, which is the supposedly antifungal substance in garlic is only released by crushing it. I don't know if anybody's ever had a cut on your finger and what it's like to get garlic in that. Um, but that would be what you would expect all through the vagina. And then of course there's the idea that, you know, could you get botulism from that? I don't know. So doesn't sound very pleasant. Doesn't sound very good. And it also doesn't work. I've had to pick cloves out of people's vaginas that have done it. And it's, you know, it's, it's people are really victimized by what they, they are exposed to online. Mm. Boric acid. Yeah. So that's another old timey solution that is, uh, you know, been around forever. And it, boric acid is, uh, you should think of boric acid like bleach. It's, it's really a disinfectant. That's what it is. And so it can have a place for people who have Azole resistant yeast infections where nothing else has worked. Uh, and so you're, you know, that this is it. This is no other option. Uh, and so that can be compounded to use vaginally for that. Um, but people have to remember it's sort of killing everything in the vagina. So it's, it's a suboptimal thing, but sometimes that's what we have to use. Uh, and we do sometimes use it when people have recurrent bacterial vaginosis as part of a complex regimen to disrupt the biofilm that we think might be there. So it's acting truly as a detergent. It doesn't acidify the vagina. Right. What about the effectiveness of diet and carb restriction in particular, sugars? I've seen that put forward as a potential strategy for yeast infections. Yeah, no. So actually that's been studied. So what is, I think a lot of people don't understand is the vagina actually is quite high from a glucose standpoint because that's what feeds the lactobacilli. So it's actually a pretty glucose rich environment. And it many times during the menstrual cycle, you may have actually more glucose, a higher percentage or higher concentration in your vagina than you actually have in your plasma. So if you eat something with sugar, it doesn't raise the level of sugar in your vagina. And someone actually studied that. They they gave a group of women, uh, you know, a, the 100 gram load of, um, you know, glucose or 75 gram, and they tested their, um, their, their, blood, their blood sugar and they measured the vaginal levels. And of course it didn't change. There so, you go. Yeah. So I think that some of it's a, a misunderstanding of what happens when people have diabetes. So there is a higher incidence of yeast infections for people who have diabetes, but that's a complex thing. Part of it we think is related to the impact on the immune system from diabetes. And the other part is almost certainly related to the fact that 
if your blood sugars are elevated or if you're taking the medicine like Jardiance, which causes you to spill glucose into your urine, that when you're going to the bathroom now, you're, you're basically bathing your vulva in a higher sugar solution. Because when we go to the bathroom, we all get a little urine plume on our skin. That's normal. And so that's probably the mechanism, a combination of immune things and glucosuria. Is that where most of the misinformation surrounding yeast infections lies? It's the uh, putting putting forward of natural alternative uh, options instead of the classes of drugs that you that you mentioned. Yeah, and I think also just a misunderstanding of what it is. So people think that they should be able to get rid of all the yeast in their body, and you can't. I mean, we it's all part of our microbiome. I think that people are they view you know, when you take a, a medication like, say, fluconazole and say you get a recurrence of yeast in six months, well, then that medicine didn't really work for you. But it did because we expected it to just treat that acute infection. And I think part of it is the complexity of it. Like, we don't really understand why people get recurrent yeast infections. There's something in the local immune system that we just don't understand. And when people don't understand things, when we have this, this, uncertainty that opens the door for predators and it comes off as a lack of confidence right and so when people come to see me i mean i'm incredibly confident when i explain all of this and then when people i say you know i'm not telling you this because i don't know how how yeast infections works i'm telling you this because this is the state of the art of the science and so you know i think it's People, we all like heuristics. We all want things boiled down to something simple. And wouldn't it be great if you could just change your diet? I see people who haven't had a slice of cake in six years. And they still have their yeast infections. And I'm like, go home and have a slice of chocolate cake. Really. Just life is for enjoying yourself. You know, you know don't deny a simple pleasure because obviously it didn't work. If that worked, no one would have yeast infections. We Everybody would know the answer. It's It gets back to also this use of conspiracy theory language in alternative medicine, right? They don't want you to know. It's like, well, okay, but diet's a pretty simple answer. If that were really the case, we'd have it solved. I think some people think putting diet forward is not a profitable treatment solution no one can profit off of that and therefore um, we're seeing more doctors recommend medications so i understand in this case you're talking about there was a study it showed it didn't work right and if that study had have showed it did work you would probably recommend it Um, but yeah i think that's the position that that many people take here or what how they feel is that diet's not putting put forward or sleep's not being put forward because it's not profitable well i would push back and i would say diets are hugely profitable to people who sell them (laughs) so the number of diet books that are out there the number of doctors that have their own diet plans and supplements to um you know go with their diet plans i would say actually diets are really very profitable i mean there was a book called the uh the i think it's called the yeast connection which of course promoted this anti candida diet the number of people this is like a cottage industry this anti candida diet so i would say that well i don't know i think it is profitable again i think the idea that um so for example whether i talk to somebody talk to someone about diet or i talk with them about fluconazole i get paid the same Completely the same. It makes no difference to me what I talk with somebody about. 
Uh, and for most doctors, that's actually the case. We don't get money for writing a prescription. There's That doesn't exist. Now, there are some doctors who are on speaker boards and things like that. And do those kinds of kickbacks influence their prescribing? Yes, absolutely. That's why pharmaceutical companies do that. But the majority of physicians actually aren't getting those kickbacks. And so I think that it's a case of a few kind of contaminating the whole. A few bad apples. Yeah. The class of drugs, Azole, I think you said they, mm-hmm. they end in. What's their safety profile like? Oh, they're incredible. Well, they're different ones. So I think that's important to, you know, not all azoles are exactly the same. Uh, so the topicals, just irritation from using them. Oral fluconazole, incredibly safe. We use it for, you know, in the doses uh, for yeast infections as there's no blood testing that's required. We can give it to people once a week for years if we have to when people have recurrent infections that uh, that we can't control in other ways. Now, if you're looking at a drug like itraconazole, which is also an azole, but it's different, which we might use for someone who's got a fluconazole-resistant strain, then we do have to do some liver tests at the beginning to make sure. There's other azoles that we don't use for yeast infections because they have a higher risk of liver injury. So for example, ketoconazole. And so we can't sort of lump them all together, but the one that we use most commonly, fluconazole, is really very safe. Do you have any views on vaginal microbiome testing? Yeah, don't do it. Um, We don't have any data to know what to do with it. So I think that's part of the problem is that the microbiome changes morning, afternoon, evening. So what do I do with those results? You know, and I, if most people are testing after they've developed problems, so I don't know, is this a normal microbiome for you or was it was supposed to be like beforehand? You know, I think that, uh, and there's also some data that shows that, you know, even if we, you know, we know that, you know, the most common uh, lacto- one of the most common lactobacilli that, you know, that we see in the vagina, crispatus, that people can have different types of crispatus, kind of like there's different types of people, you know, the short people, tall people, they can have different kinds of crispatus. So we don't really know what that means. We think the more diversity, probably the better, but we don't know what to do with those results. And so what people are doing when they're getting microbiome testing is they're paying for, they're spending their money so a company can then sell that data to a pharmaceutical company because that's almost certainly what's happening, that they're collecting biobanks and then selling that data. Sounds like a similar story to the gut microbiome testing where the data is, there's just not enough evidence to help you understand what to do with that. Exactly. And it's very predatory. I mean, one of the companies that sells a microbiome test in the States wants women to get um, a, a subscription service so you can keep testing every month. Well, that's exactly what a pharmaceutical company wants. They want your monthly data. They want your weekly data. So, you know, you're, 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 you're basically the pharmaceutical company is going to be buying that information and you're paying them for that information. I mean, it's a great business model. And it sounds very cutting edge. It does. It does sound very cutting edge. And it's really upsetting to a lot of people when they come in the office and they say, well, I've done my microbiome testing and it says this. And I said, well, you need to call the company and ask them what that means. Because there's they haven't published any data to say. Yeah. How do they interpret that? Right. It's, uninter- it's uninterpretable. Mm, it's so, disappointing. It is really disappointing because it is a cool technology. And there is a lot of great microbiome research coming out. And 
people have really been trying to understand the vaginal microbiome because it's a huge cofactor actually an acquisition of sexually transmitted infections. So so we want people to have this sort of, um, you know, diverse, healthy microbiome, which is very protective. And it has an implication probably in many different illnesses. But we, we just don't know what we don't know. And again, that gets back to that uncertainty. And when we have uncertainty, that creates a gap where predators walk in. Another area where there's uncertainty. Yeah, I or, mean. Oral contraception. <laughs> well, Can we go there? Sure, <laughs> sure. There's not as much uncertainty as the people on Instagram want you to know. but Sure. Um, maybe, I mean, you mentioned at the, the beginning that some of the confusion can arise because of a lack of understanding of biology. So perhaps we go sort of very basic to begin <laughs> with and talk about menstruation and, and what's happening and then but the, the sort of one-on-one of how birth control works. Yeah. So this kind of gets back, though, to what we were talking about earlier about religion and natural, right? So what are the words that you describe religion or God with? Pure, clean, and natural. And those are sort of the words that people ascribe to not being on contraception, right? So this idea that you're in this natural state, which is a godly state, and we do see a lot of overlap with the disinformation with kind of the radical right here in the U.S. I think it's really important for people, especially in a country where we are here, where access to contraception is at risk. Access to, you know, basic, um, you know, reproductive health care is at risk for a large percentage of the country. So birth control can work in a variety of different ways. So if we're talking about um, uh, the birth control pill, then the primary method is by suppressing the LH surge. So each month you have an egg that starts to develop and then uh, under the influence of the hormone follicle stimulating hormone or FSH. And then when it reaches a certain point and the estradiol levels are right and all of the chemical soup is correct, you have a surge of luteinizing hormone or LH, which triggers ovulation. Now, thinking about it, a lot. what a lot of people don't know is there's always sort of waves of follicles that are coming up, getting ready to develop. And so it's super important for the body to have an ability to shut down ovulation because you don't keep ovulating once you're pregnant, right? So you have to think about all of this in terms of pregnancy because that's how it evolved because that would be not good and you don't want to get a second pregnancy on top of another, like how would that work? So when you start releasing the hormone progesterone, from the corpus luteum and then later from the placenta if you get pregnant that's basically a break on lh it shuts it down and so that stops ovulation but it doesn't stop the follicles kind of coming up and then oh nothing's there to stimulate me oh coming up nothing there to stimulate me so when somebody's on the birth control pill the primary method is suppression of lh from the progestin that's in the pill, which is a progesterone-like hormone. And the estrogen does some suppression as well, the estradiol. It also helps to suppress the FSH. And so what happens is your follicles are kind of on ice around day three. So they're producing low levels of estrogen. Um, there's a confusion. Some naturopaths think people are like in a menopausal-like state on the pill, and that's not the case. And the secondary effects for contraception are also the progestin has a really profound impact on cervical mucus and makes it kind of inhospitable to sperm, which kind of sounds like the sperm's coming over for tea and the you know, cervical mucus is like, sorry, you can't come in. And possibly an effect on tubal motility as well. So there are, you know, there are these other things, but cervical mucus and suppression of the LH surge are the two key mechanisms. 
And what's happening to egg production when you're on the pill? Keeps coming up and going. So it still going. occurs. Yeah. And okay. they just doesn't go anywhere. Because otherwise, if we put people on the pill, it would delay menopause, right? So, because you only have a certain number of follicles, you know, about 400,000 or so. And so it's really a group effort. It's about a thousand follicles to get one ready to ovulate. And along that sort of long pathway, you lose a lot. And so, yeah, so you keep, you keep developing an egg and then it doesn't go anywhere. Right. And do we have any studies that have looked at how um, use of birth control, oral birth control affects fertility? I have, there's no impact. So no method of contraception has any permanent impact on fertility at all. Depo-Provera, which is an injection, can have a delay in return to fertility. Just, that has a very profound effect on LH. And also because it's an injection, it can take a little while for people to metabolize it and clear it through the system. But they put people on birth control pills to help time IVF cycles. So, you know, if it affected fertility, they wouldn't be doing that, right? So they do it because the great thing about it is it holds those follicles in kind of day three. So you can basically time things very nicely. In terms of taking oral contraception, is the, is the protocol to take it for, for three weeks and then you come off for a week or do you just take it continuously? I've seen different ideas out there. Well, so it depends on an individual's goal. And I think this is one of the big problems with a lot of things in medicine is people are totally just given something and they aren't given all the explanations that go along with it. So initially there was the 21 days on seven days off because people didn't like not having a period when they were on the pill. The original pill was every day when they were testing it in the 1950s and people thought they were pregnant and, you know, this is a time when abortion was illegal and, you know, people were concerned about it. So they decided to have this seven day gap. But now we know it's not necessary. And in fact, what can happen is because those eggs are coming up and ooh, going away, coming up and going away, that seven-day gap can sometimes one pill, one egg can be like, oh, hey, I'm going to run with it. And then all of a sudden you can have an escape ovulation, right? So that seven-day gap has a slightly higher pregnancy rate. And why have a period if you don't want to have one? Right. So when you stop taking birth control, how quickly does the body kind of bounce back and get back into its natural rhythm next cycle because you have to remember your whole system is set to be able to be shut down by pregnancy and then come back online right so the idea that because the whole suppression of lh is exactly what happens during pregnancy as well so what would you say to someone let's say they're in their mid-30s they've they've been on the birth control pill for 15 years they've come off and they're having trouble falling pregnant so they should have an investigation to find out why that is. So one of the big reasons people start the pill is they were having cycle problems, right? So often people go on in their late teens because for a lot of people, there can be a lot of cycle irregularity in the first few years, like a lot. And they can have very heavy periods and very irregular, they have bad acne. And people want to go on the pill because they, they don't be bleeding all over the place. So they don't want to, you know, maybe they have bad cramps. When you stop the pill you go back to what your baseline was going to be. So there's no change that happens because of it. That's really been, you know, I think very well studied. It, so the common reason we see is people go on the pill because they were having these problems. And probably what was happening is they were polycystic ovarian syndrome in evolution, right? So 
what's one of the most evidence-based treatments for polycystic ovarian syndrome? The estrogen-containing birth control pill. So they were well-treated with for those symptoms for 15 years because they were getting high-quality evidence-based medicine. Then they stop it, and now that original problem is back again. But people mistake it for a side effect of the pill. Yeah, or I've seen people suggest that they simply masked the issue and, and they they wish they had have treated the PCOS. Well, but the estrogen-containing birth control pill is the, the number one evidence-based treatment for many of the symptoms. So I'm not sure what other treatment they would have wanted. They could have, they could have tried metformin perhaps if that was appropriate for them. But it's not like there was a secret diet or a secret supplement that would have fixed it. Um, and so, and we can make the diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome when people are on the pill. We can talk to them and ask people, what were your symptoms like beforehand? If someone tells me that they had a problem with facial hair before they got on the pill, they had really irregular cycles before they got on the pill, you probably have polycystic ovarian syndrome. So, you know, I think that Again, it comes down to sort of someone spending the time and explaining what's happening. And so, uh, and of course, there's a lot of um, just unfortunately misinformation from medical providers about, you know, PCOS as well. Is infertility rates increasing? I'm probably not the person to ask about that because I don't, you know, I don't have an infertility-based practice. I, I'm not aware of data that says that, but... I'm going to give you a caveat there that you probably should be talking to, a, you know, a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist for that. The other question that I get here is what about blood clots? And I think earlier you mentioned the importance of understanding risk. Yeah. So people, people like to talk about the risks of the pills, and there are risks. And people say, oh, there's a black box warning for the pill, right? And if pregnancy were a pill, there would be a black box warning. Right. So the risk of blood clots baseline is like, you know, one to five per 10,000. And with the pill, it's like three to seven per 10,000. So sure, there are a few extra that are going to happen, but it's not 20 times. It's not 10 times. And, you know, in the postpartum period, it's 20 to 50 per 10,000. Right. So, you know, so you're putting all that in perspective. And you have to say, what is that doing for you, right, as a person? So if it's allowing you to not have 15 years of, of you know, say you were going to have three pregnancies in those 15 years, then absolutely, you know, you've had a net benefit from that. If it's allowed you to treat your painful periods, you've had a net benefit. And, you know, studies actually tell us that, you know, taking the pill is not associated with a decrease in longevity. There's a decrease in ovarian cancer, decrease in endometrial cancer, decrease in colon cancer, a slight increase in breast cancer while you're on it, which goes away when you stop it. And also there's a slight increased risk of breast cancer in pregnancy. So people always have to put it in perspective. Right. Does all of this or some of this also apply to intrauterine devices and um, contraceptive implants as well? So yes and no. So the contraceptive implant, uh, the edonogestral implant, also works by suppressing the LH surge, and but it just has progestin. There's no estrogen in it. And there's also a pill that there are also several pills with just progestins in them as well. Why would someone opt for or be prescribed that versus the other option you mean an estrogen containing pill versus one without so up until recently the there was only one progestin only pill certainly on the market in the states anyway and there was some concern that it might not be quite as effective 
adding the estrogen in probably added a slight increase in efficacy. Also reduced the problems of irregular bleeding, so made it easier to be on. But there are some newer progestins that are longer acting that um, that seem to have the same efficacy rate as the estrogen-containing pills. So they're very new. They've been on the market for just a little bit of time. So really the main reason to be on the estrogen is really if you're having cycle control issues or if you're somebody who has polycystic ovarian syndrome, you absolutely want that estrogen. That's an important to counteract the testosterone. Um, and people with premenstrual mood dysphoria, that seems to also be an important component. Those are the pills that have been studied. So those are the kind of the big differences between those pills. The edonigestral implant just has progestin and it suppresses LH and has a profound effect also on cervical mucus. And it's even more effective than the pill. Highly, highly reliable. And I have to say, when it came out, I thought, oh, people aren't going to like that. And they love it. I'm constantly amazed at how many people like the implant. Um, but yeah, I'm coming from, there was an older implant when I trained called Norplant, which was six rods in the arm and had all kinds of bleeding problems. And so, you know, you sort of come to that thinking, oh, is it just the same? But it's not. And people love it. So there's the edonigestral implant. There's two different kinds of, two different classes of IUDs. There's the copper IUD. Uh, and there are progestin IUDs. And the copper IUD is basically copper is toxic to sperm. So that's how that works. And the progestin IUDs work by the effect on cervical mucus. Mm -hmm. And the safety profile of those? They're great. So, um, you know, the there's obviously... A risk of having some pain with insertion, and that's a whole separate discussion. But there are many things that can be done in the office for that. Many times, pain is undertreated, and that's not acceptable. The um, there's a very small risk of infection with insertion, like one in a thousand risk. Uh, there is um, with a copper IUD. Some people can get some heavier periods afterwards, which nobody is ever pleased about. But there are also things you can do for that. Taking actually ibuprofen can reduce the heavy periods, uh, and the progestin IUDs. Um, will can be associated with some irregular bleeding but over time that tends to go away and for many people they'll have no periods at all with the progestin iud's there's also some you know lower risk of side effects some people will report acne um, and ovarian cysts as well so those are kind of the major ones do you find uh, clinically oral contraception is helpful for managing symptoms during the perimenopausal phase? Yeah, absolutely. So when people are in the menopause transition, that's characterized by erratic ovulation. And the only way to shut down erratic ovulation is to shut down ovulation, right? So for some people who are bleeding all over the place, who are having you know issues with worsening premenstrual mood dysphoria during the menopause transition, who are really suffering from hot flashes, the birth control pill with estrogen can be super useful. Uh, some people don't want to be on that, and they can. Another option would be to have the hormonal IUD to control their periods, and then try a low dose, a, a typical menopausal dose of estrogen, which is you know significantly lower that's in the pill. And it just kind of depends on what are the problems you're trying to fix, right? So what's bothering the person? When should someone or or should a woman in her forties, let's say, who is kind of hasn't done a blood test for a while, hasn't been to see the doctor. What's your advice with regards to getting blood work done and speaking to a doctor about that perimenopausal kind of phase of a woman's life? Yeah, so you don't need any blood work for 
perimenopause, the menopause transition, what you need is somebody to talk to about what's going on symptom-wise. So if you're starting to get a new onset of irregular periods and you're 46, that's expected. Just like if you start growing when you're nine, no one's going to say, wait a minute, why are you growing? Well, we all expect puberty to come at that time. But if you started growing when you were four, then people are like, wait a minute, that's the wrong time. So if you're having symptoms that we associate with the menopause transition and you're 36, you absolutely need to have testing. But if you're having symptoms associated with the menopause transition and you're 46, you don't need testing. It's probably valuable to check a thyroid hormone level just to make sure because you know what? Two things can happen at the same time. And if you're not up to date on your screening for diabetes and your cholesterol and all those other things, absolutely. And often that's a good time to check in and say, hey, we haven't had your blood pressure checked for a while. Hey, we haven't had your cholesterol checked. So there's good reasons to check in. A bit of an audit. Yeah, but you don't need hormone testing to make the diagnosis of of, uh, the menopause transition or menopause. Right, I've seen you talk about the Dutch test. (sighs) Is that what it's called? Yeah, I I have spoken about this previously in in another episode, but I I think it's worth touching on again. Yeah, I mean, this is some kind of dried urine test where it tests supposedly for estrogen metabolites. And, you know, whether it's accurate for that or not, I can't speak of it, but it's completely clinically meaningless. So you don't need it. So what happens is people get this done and then, of course, they get all these specialized hormones prescribed to them or they're told they're estrogen dominant, which is a medically nonsensical term, or they're progesterone dominance and these things mean nothing but they sound good right it sounds really good for somebody oh you're estrogen dominant really oh um and so then they get these complex hormone combinations prescribed to sort of match this profile and then of course you need to be retested to see if things are are you know are falling into place the way you want them to. And it's a hormone testing for people over the age of 45 is a way to get repeat business. That's really all it is because they change all the time and we don't manage menopause based on hormone levels. Where's this estrogen dominance idea come from and why is that a myth? Well, it's always hard to explain disinformation. That's kind of like somebody dreamed up. I think some of it comes from There was a family doctor in the 1970s who had these bizarre concepts about progesterone and things, and that kind of infiltrated into naturopathic medicine. So I think it's really a naturopathic concept. I think some of it's a misunderstanding of what polycystic ovarian syndrome is. I think some of it's a misunderstanding of the normal menstrual cycle. You know, if I ask five people what they've been told about estrogen dominance, I get five different answers. So, and I once Googled it just to kind of see, and I got... A whole bunch of different things from different people. So I think it's, you know, it's the Emmanuel Goldstein, like in 1984, right? It can be whatever you want it to. Sounds a little bit like adrenal fatigue. Yes. It's exactly like adrenal fatigue. Yes. That'd be a great analogy. Right. Sometimes I think someone might listen to this and, and hear that and feel almost like a personal attack because that's a diagnosis they've been given. And I would hate for someone to feel like that. But is that... Do you ever have patients that kind of express that? They almost feel like when you're presenting that information like you are now, that it's insulting. So in the office, I would never say, you don't have estrogen dominance. That's a, a, a crazy diagnosis. In the office, I would say to somebody, I'm here that you have symptoms. I absolutely believe that you have symptoms, but your symptoms aren't due to estrogen dominance. Your symptoms are due to X, Y, and Z. So, and I think that's, 
the corollary or the important follow-through is when someone's been diagnosed with adrenal fatigue or they've been diagnosed with estrogen dominance or progesterone dominance or whatever, they have symptoms. Their symptoms are real. Their symptoms are real, absolutely. They've been misdiagnosed. Unfortunate. A lot of the time, menopause is spoken about in a very kind of negative sense. I've seen you write about the grandmother hypothesis. Yeah. Can you share that with us? Yeah. So it's true. And what people don't realize is a lot of the negative things that we hear about menopause is really actually part of pharma marketing from the 1960s. It's kind of a carryover from this book called Feminine Forever. Because um, the worst thing that could happen to you, you know, as a woman would be that you would ha have a disease that would make you unattractive to men. That's the worst possible thing that could happen. So, um, so if you want to sell a new product, you need to make a disease, right? So the grandmother hypothesis, which also is also known as the wise woman hypothesis, because not everybody's a grandmother, is this idea that there is value in having a post-reproductive lifespan. So most mammals reproduce and then die. It's, you know, you've, you've about a year after you're done or depending on that kind of animal, maybe it's a few months, but you're basically reproducing until you drop dead. But humans don't do that, right? Humans reproduce until they're kind of their early 40s, fertility drops off dramatically, and then they keep on living. And this isn't a lot of people have this erroneous idea that this keeping on living is a new thing, but it's not. If you look at life tables, women have been living longer than men for, you know, more than 100 years. And, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks were accurate about the age of menopause being 51. And they couldn't have been accurate if everybody was dying before then, right? They just couldn't have been. So, what studies tell us is that when there is a menopausal woman, a woman who's post-reproductive in the family unit, her children have more children. So it's genetics, the long game. We're all here, you know, um, you know, Dr. Ponzer, uh, I had him on my podcast and he said that, you know, uh, life is as turning energy into offspring. So we all think about it as the next generation, but it's pretty smart to actually be invested in the grand generation too, right? So there are several studies that look at birth records, um, one which looked at studies from the 1700s in both actually Finland and Canada and found that when uh, children lived in the same family unit with their mother, they had more they had more grandchildren. When they moved away, that effect was lost. So it wasn't genetic. So the grandmother is enabling the mothers to have more children. Think about it. It is a lot of work to have an infant, to feed an infant, to raise an infant in our harsh environments. Think about what it was like 10,000, 20,000 years ago. And there's also data from Hazda women in Tanzania uh, where they've looked at how much work a grandmother does. And when her daughter is pregnant and breastfeeding, she's spending 37 hours a week foraging for food. That's a lot of exercise, right? And she's providing the bulk of the calories for the family unit. So if you can offload tasks, it's easier to reproduce. Right. If this is nature's way, why intervene with hormones? Why not just let it run its course? Well, you know, I think that um, we have we have big brains for a reason, and big brains let us work our way out of things. And so you could also say, well, then, you know, why have um, phosphodiesterase inhibitors for erectile dysfunction, right? 
Why not let nature take its course? Why let why treat people with cancer? Why treat anybody? Because we have big brains and because we think that alleviating suffering is a good thing. And so if you're suffering with symptoms, be it bothersome irregular periods or hot flashes, you know, we have science that can tell us how we can help you. Just like we have science to keep our food refrigerated so we don't have to get food poisoning and science that lets me, you know, um, clean my house with chemicals so the salmonella from my chicken isn't going to kill us all. And so I think it's really just comes down to that is that, you know, we have science that tells us every single person doesn't need to be on hormones, right? That's not what the science tells us. If you don't have symptoms, if you're not at high risk for osteoporosis, you don't need hormones. Um, and if you are at high risk for osteoporosis and you can't take hormones, you don't want to, you know what? There's other medications. So there's options. So someone's health is not just going to fall apart if they're not taking hormones. No, absolutely not. Um, there are, like I said, the people who do better with hormones and people who don't need it. And a great example is pregnancy. There are some people who sail through their pregnancy. They say, I felt the greatest I ever felt in my entire life. And there's other people who look at them are going, what? That was the worst I ever felt, right? Or some people sail through puberty and other people have terrible acne. So, you know, we have all of these different ways that we're put together and probably different enzymes metabolize things and, you know, are also life experiences. We have a lot of data now about adverse childhood experiences having an impact later in life. And so there's many things together in our soup that give us these individual experiences. So I get the feeling from kind of listening to you that you feel like the pendulum may have swung too far almost from a fear, a total fear of hormones to certain corners of the internet and media seeing hormones as a magical cure. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been doing this a long time, so we're coming around the barn again. So, you know, when I was in training, it was estrogen for everybody. 80% of women in menopause were on hormones. Everybody. You're 62. You're coming in for an annual check. Oh, we should put you on hormones. That's what we did. Then the pendulum swung the other way. And that's how we are in life, right? Humans are like, we all want it. We all want everything to be on or off, right? So it's, but with most things, the answer is more in the middle. And so we're starting to see some people making false claims about what hormones can do. And I think that unfortunately dilutes the message that this is a really great, it's a really great option for a lot of people, but it's not something that everybody needs. And it's not like you're missing out if you're, if you're not taking them. If you don't need them, you don't need them. What are some of the, the problems that you've observed? Oh, uh, well, certainly, um, you know, people who get cancers from taking, you know, unregulated hormone concoctions. Compounded. Or, or just taking high doses of estrogen without progesterone because they're told they're whatever progesterone dominant. People afraid to take hormones and suffering in symptoms because they were told they were estrogen dominant you know, or have too much toxic estrogen. Um, and so, yeah, we see, I see both ends of it. I see people who are on too much and having problems. I see people who are too afraid. And I see people who end up paying large amounts of money for things that they could get from their insurance company for $30, you know, because they've been sucked into, you know, what they read online. And so, you know, there 
are really good practitioners out there, but of course, our attention always goes to the the ones that are making the bolder claims, I would say. Yeah, I saw you made a comment saying that you could not pay me to take compounded hormones. Not enough. Can you I, explain that to someone? Yeah. I deserve to have a medication where I know how much is in each dose. I deserve to have a medication where I know that's what it says. I deserve a medication made in a lab that's clean, that hasn't been cited by the FDA for problems. That's what I deserve. I deserve to know when I put a patch on my body, how much is getting into my bloodstream. I know all of that with a pharmaceutical hormone. With compounded hormones, I know none of it. There are some studies that show that with some compounded hormones, people are absorbing very little of the hormone. So I know this is shocker. I mean, obviously I'm being, I, you know, <laughs> uh, over, you know, I'm exaggerating, but here, but it takes decades of research to figure out how to get a hormone through the skin into your blood or how to absorb it, right? Because we didn't evolve to eat hormones, right? We evolved to have them be dumped into our bloodstream. So all of that research doesn't exist with these compounded hormones. The idea that you can just, oh, mix up some estradiol powder into some vanacream and put it on your leg and it's going to get absorbed, really? Where's the data to show that's going to get absorbed? So if these are more expensive and there's no data, why then are people led to believe that they're the better option? Well, probably the same reason why people think a Mercedes is better than a Toyota. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean... I've had both. I actually prefer my Toyota, <laughs> a lot less expensive. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's the marketing. It's the marketing. And they, again, play into this idea that Big Pharma is evil, even though these companies are profiting wildly. And they make false claims. They're associated with blood tests, which gives you the illusion that you're getting this bespoke thing. I'm special. Of course, they should have to monitor my hormones individually. And I get why people would think that if you don't right. know the medicine. I've heard that because based on what you were saying earlier about absorption being different, one of the responses to that I've heard is, but my doctor is testing my levels to well, see how effective they are. Well, you're going to a bad doctor. That's what I would say. Um, there is, we do not manage hormone therapy testing levels. We absolutely do not. The commercial tests for estrogen are not designed for that. They're designed for diagnostic purposes. They're not designed for therapeutic purposes, right? And we have great data. We know that what dose of hormone in a patch or in a pill works for symptoms. And what I see is the majority of people, when things don't work, it's because they were, again, oversold what the hormones would do. Because I don't have those people in my practice. I don't have people coming in needing higher and higher and higher doses because I counsel them appropriately about what they could expect from the hormones. What does bioidentical hormones mean? Yeah, I hate that term. And I know a lot of people use it, and I probably irritate a lot of people by my anger about it. But it comes from the sort of alternative medicine world, because it came from these compounded bioidentical hormones, which entered the market after the Women's Health Initiative sort of created that whole fuss about what we should do about hormone safety. And they said, of course, they're safer because they're bioidentical, because the Women's Health Initiative used Premarin, which is conjugated equine estrogens. And they're saying, well, we're using the identical estrogen from your ovaries. Well, there's a few problems with that. The estrogen from your ovaries is also what gives you breast cancer and can give you endometrial cancer. So just because hormones in your body doesn't mean that it's safe, everything's in the has to be studied, right? Because when you're taking it 
as a pharmaceutical, it's not the same thing. So there's that. And there's also, and this is a pharmacological sticking point, but they're not truly bioidentical. They have a different ratio of uh, carbon isotopes, 12C to 13C. If they were identical, they'd be the same. So that irritates me that the association with alternative medicine irritates me. And it's used as marketing. The reason transdermal estradiol is the best option for menopausal hormone therapy is not because estradiol is the same as the estrogen made by your ovaries are almost identical. It's because that's the one that's been studied and shown to be effective. So that's a patch or a gel? Patch or gel, and mm. there's a lotion and I think a spray. Okay. So that's your preference over the pill? Those are the recommendations from all of the menopause societies. Mm. Yeah, to start with transdermal, because there's a lower incidence of, we believe a lower incidence of clots and cardiovascular complications. How does a doctor work out dosage. Is that something that's in the guidelines? I saw there was some controversy, for example, in the UK with some dosing issues. What's the kind of protocol that exists for dosing these things? Well, there isn't any controversy from true experts, I would say. So we know the people have studied it that, you know, that a standard dose of uh, menopausal hormone therapy is a 50 microgram estradiol patch or whatever the equivalent of spray or whatever is there there's not always sort of like truly it's not always necessarily 50 but you'll be able to see on the product insert what's the comparable amount of sprays or pumps or whatever and how frequently are you putting that patch on well it depends some are twice a week and some are once a week but it's the same cumulative dose and the good way to think about that is so when at the start of your menstrual cycle uh your estradiol might be you know 20 anywhere between sort of 15 to 30, I think it's picograms per milliliter. I could have the the actual units incorrect. Um, and an estradiol patch gives you 50. So throughout the cycle, then your hormone levels go up and then they go down. So a 100 microgram patch would give you the average amount of estrogen that you would have in your body before menopause. And you obviously don't need that amount. So a 50 microgram patch is about half that amount. And studies tell us that that dose eliminates hot flashes or significantly improves them for over 80% of people. That's the dose that is very effective. Lots of people manage with a lower dose, 25 micrograms. And that's again why testing isn't a good idea. Because I remember I told you that at the beginning of the cycle, your levels could be as low as 18, 19, 20. Well, below 20 is menopause, but that can also be the start of the cycle right? So it's not the levels that matter. It's the response to treatment that matters. Does that change post-menopause in terms of do the levels, um, is testing hormone levels more relevant post-menopause or same thing? Yeah, no, it's not recommended at all. Um, so yeah, you we treat solely based on symptoms. It's symptomatic treatment. And that's really hard, I think, for a lot of people to wrap their head around because it's not something that we do with a lot. People often think about like thyroid disease, right? Like my son has congenital hypothyroidism. He's got to get his blood work checked you know, when he was growing, he had to check more often and he has to get it checked, you know, once or twice a year to make sure that the dose is the right for him. If, if we waited till he got symptoms, then he'd actually be, you know, be too late or not optimal. But that's not what menopausal hormone therapy is. It's not a replacement. It's a therapy for symptoms. So what was the controversy about in the UK recently with dosing? Um, I think there's some providers there that recommend a doses that are uh, higher than you would say would be in the birth control pill, you know, that are, they're putting people on, you know, mega doses. None of the safety data we have 
is for those doses. That's some really important for people to understand that when we're talking about, you know, the low risks of breast cancer, which are very low, when we're talking about the low risk of clots, all these very low risk of things, those are with the standard doses. When you start talking about these higher doses, we have no safety data. We don't know. We don't know how much progesterone. So if you have a uterus, we have to give you progesterone or progestin or you'll get uterine cancer. You know, it's a very high rate. We don't know how to match those doses. And so what I've heard is people have been increasing, increasing their doses because they felt unwell. But we're not looking for wellness when we prescribe estrogen. It's, is it helping your hot flashes? Is it helping your sleep? For people in the menopause transition, some people it can help with mild depression. Is it helping with these things? We know the doses that should help. So if it's not helping, then it might be something else. Sleep apnea can affect your sleep. Sleep apnea can give you night sweats. Um, Some people have depression that needs antidepressants, right? So there are other things you have to consider. So it's really important that outside of the standardized doses, um, we we just don't have safety data. And I've been doing this for a long time. Like I said, I was practicing when we gave estrogen literally to everybody. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like, I think I once put an 82 year old on estrogen because that's what we thought was the right thing. Whether they had symptoms or not. Yeah, well, they can't, I heard I should be on that estrogen. My friend's on it. Yeah, sure, here you go. We gave it to everybody because that was the standard of care at the time. And I've never had to give people over the standard doses of estrogen. So now the indications are those acute symptoms or if someone has osteopenia or a family history of osteopenia or osteoporosis? Yeah, so symptoms that could be treated. And I'll take vaginal estrogen out of the picture because vaginal estrogen is, many, many people need that and can be very helpful for dryness, pain with sex, prevention of urinary tract infections. But systemic, so hormones going through your bloodstream would be for hot flashes. It's the gold standard of treatment, probably the most effective. And there's no reason to suffer. If you're suffering, there's treatment night sweats, which are probably from a health standpoint, the bigger issue because chronically disrupted sleep is not a good thing, right? You're waking up three, four times a night. And then what happens is you throw the sheets off and then after the hot flash, you're cold and you're lying in the sweat. And so then that wakes you up, right? And so it's this on and off, on and off with the sheets all night. That's not good for you. Um, Mild depression, that's not a true indication, but there's some good data to back that up. And so those are are the reasons to to go on it. And there are some other reasons that might fall out of the standard guidelines, but with appropriate counseling, you could discuss it. So for example, joint pain is a common symptom in the menopause transition. There's data to show that hormones can help, but they don't help that much. Like I don't have the numbers right off the top of my head, but if 60% of people get joint pain, then with hormones, it's like 45%. So like a 15% improvement. Does that mean it's wrong to try? Well, no, if you're really suffering, because we don't really have anything else. But you should be told it's not a standardized treatment. It's we're in this kind of area where you're suffering. These are the risks. And you want to give this a try to see if it makes a difference. So where does cardiovascular and dementia prevention fall? We certainly don't recommend hormones for dementia prevention. Um, that was something that we used to recommend, and it's no longer, you know, an indication um, for that. And we also don't recommend it for cardiovascular um, prevention. So, uh, so really, people should be looking for lifestyle changes, exercise. Um, and I always tell people, look, if you only have one thing you can do in menopause, 
is exercise. I think a number of uh, women who experience hot flashes but are contraindicated for estrogen, maybe they've had a history of, of cancer, um, are looking for other um, alternative treatments that might work and help with those hot flashes. And I saw you post about Vioza. Yeah, Fazolinet. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, yeah, so it's a new drug that works on uh, the uh, neurokinin B receptor. So hot flashes are very complex biologically or biochemically or both. And we don't really understand them completely because obviously we can't dissect somebody's brain while they're having a hot flash, right? Um, but basically, we have an area of our brain, um, the, the candy neurons, and they part of their job, they do many things, is a signal about heat. And so they, they want to tell you that you're hot. And estrogen suppresses the kindy neurons. And with menopause, without estrogen, that area of the brain actually grows. So you send more heat signals. And then what happens is you have another part, of, you have the, the um, kindy neurons make neurokinin 3, which then stimulates them to send more heat signals. So fizolinate blocks that neurokinin 3 um, interaction with the kindy neurons. And yeah, it seems to be in studies, um, you know, it hasn't been studied head to head with estrogen. Um, probably a little bit less effective, but certainly worth trying. Absolutely. Um, and someone with a history of cancer yeah, can use that. Exactly. History of cancer, breast cancer, endometrial cancer, somebody who just doesn't like how they feel on hormones. Some people don't want to take hormones. I mean, we all have a different sort of gestalt about like what makes us happy or what we want to do with our bodies. I'm all for having more evidence-based options. And then there's other medications like gabapentin, venlafaxine, um, you know, and a few other, um, a couple of the other antidepressants uh, can be used as well. What about supplements during perimenopause and menopause? There's a whole lot of things that is marketed towards um, this part of the population. Are there any supplements that are effective? Are there, are there some supplements that are widely marketed that you would say are, are BS? Yeah. So, so I, I always tell people, let's separate it out to single ingredient products and multiple ingredient products. And then in the single ingredient products, let's just look at vitamins or minerals. So there is some evidence that um, some people will do better with a calcium supplement, not for symptoms, but for you know, maintenance of their bone mass, right? If you're not able to get enough calcium in your diet. Uh, and that vitamin D may also be important for some people, although the data is not that great, but it's probably no harm from taking it. And then there's everything else, everything that's not calcium or vitamin D. And there's really no good data for any of it. You know, um, yeah, I wouldn't take any of them. I mean, I, I always quote the people that study there is um, somebody looked at black cohosh. And they wondered why. Well, why do some people work for and some people it doesn't? Well, first of all, we know that the placebo response for hot flashes in studies is really robust. It's like 30 to 40%. So if you're only doing a four-week study or you're just doing a non-placebo-controlled um, study, lots of people are going to do great on your product because everybody's going to have benefit or not everybody, but 30, 40, 30 to 40% of people are going to do great in four weeks because the placebo effect. Uh, so there's that. But the other thing that people don't realize is you literally have no idea what you're taking when you're taking a supplement. So when I take a pill from a pharmaceutical company, I can guarantee the exact amount that's going to be in there, probably what, with whatever their standard of error is that they've agreed with the, the FDA. Like I said before, it could be dirt from someone's backyard. So somebody wondered, 
what was actually in black cohosh? Why were like some people getting better and some people weren't? And this is a big problem with supplements is many of them are adulterated with pharmaceuticals, right? So there's also that issue or with um, designer steroids. That's another issue, especially with weight loss drugs or bodybuilding drugs. And so they found that I, I think it was 30%. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but something like 30% of black cohosh pills contained no black cohosh, none. Is that is that mostly a United States thing? Is that the same in Canada? Um, I think it's the same. I mean, it'd be the same in Canada, whether it's you know uh, whether it's the same everywhere around the world. I don't know, but um, capitalism is is that a is, is is it live everywhere? But uh, so then they said, well, what is in these black cohosh samples that doesn't have black cohosh? Well, so black cohosh is like native to North America, right? So they wondered, oh well we'll be generous and say maybe they just picked like the wrong herb next to it, right? Contained a plant not native to North America. So it wasn't like an accidental, like we picked the clover instead kind of thing. A few ingredients were being mixed. Yeah. So imagine if you went to the grocery store and you were buying a can of corn and 30% of the time you open the can of corn, it would be black beans. You'd be pretty annoyed, right? I'd be pretty happy. I love black oh, beans. Oh, okay. We have black beans. <laughs> but what if the recipe was corn? You had to have corn. I'd still be happy. I'll <laughs> eat black beans every day. Oh, I don't like them. I like pinto beans better. Yeah, pinto um, beans are good too. So and so it's it's like that. Like people would be on the news, right? Like it yeah. would be a news story. So yeah, so I would say with every supplement, the quality of evidence is very low. These companies are making money off of you. And the question is really, why have they not done robust studies? I want to finish here on equality. I saw something that you wrote and I thought it was a nice piece, a sentiment. Um, you were writing about inequality that exists in heterosexual relationships between men and women. And I have a quote here. You said, blaming menopause is giving bad men a pass for shitty behavior. Before jumping to menopause as a cause of a problem and estrogen as a solution, it's important to step back and look at the whole picture because sometimes your hormones have F all to do with it. <laughs> I edited that part. <laughs> Using menopause as an excuse for a mediocre man is a new low and quite frankly, it is epic gaslighting. So I read that and, and I have to say, as a man, I, I feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I understand <laughs> that it's an important conversation and um, something that we need to be able to talk about in our community and in our relationships. So maybe you can unpack that for us. Yeah, so that was in response to an advice column in The Guardian where this woman who was 47 was talking about her absolute lump of a husband who wasn't doing any help around the house. And they had an agreement, she'd explained this, before they got married about what their relationship would look like. And she was doing all of the labor with the kids and sounded like all the emotional labor and doing everything. And he was going to the pub with his buddies. And she was wondering about getting a divorce. And of course, the advice columnist said, well, maybe it's menopause. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, wait a minute. The woman didn't say anything about hot flashes. She didn't say anything about night sweats. She only talked about the problem in her relationship. And the answer was, maybe you're more intolerant. Wait a minute. You should be intolerant of that behavior. That's normal. Sometimes it's normal to be angry. And so this is an issue. So first of all, when women are angry, oh, well, you know, you're hysterical or you're, you shouldn't be angry. You should behave yourself. And like, sometimes it's really valid to be angry. 
So there's that. And there's also a lot of women, especially in heterosexual relationships, bear the brunt of the emotional labor in the household. They bear a brunt of a lot of things. And when you're doing everything and you're not taking care of yourself, of course, you're going to feel badly. And I see a lot of people, I'm like, well, why? So when we start talking about menopause, I'm like, well, how about let's talk about how you could go for a 10-minute walk once a day. Of course you feel awful. If you if your whole day is serving other people and you have no time for yourself, you can't even take a 10-minute walk outside and get fresh air, of course you feel awful. Hormones aren't going to fix that. And so what happens is people are put on hormones when that's what the problem is. And I'm not saying maybe they also have hot flashes, but if you're never getting to do anything for yourself and you're you can't even have a 10-minute walk, of course you're going to feel those hormones aren't helping you and you're going to ask for a higher dose. And I, when I was researching my book, I had to dig around to find this old episode of Oprah where she interviewed uh, Dr. Phil McGraw's wife. And uh, she was talking about uh, Mrs. Phil McGraw. I can't remember her name, unfortunately, which is really bad of me, but I was very angry after watching it. So that's blocked from my brain. She was talking about how awful she felt. She spent her days driving her kids back and forth to school. She, Her son was leaving for college. She only had time to eat cake for breakfast and gummies in the car for lunch. You know what the answer to feeling awful was? Bioidentical hormones. And I was watching that episode with my husband who stood up and went, it's eating cake for breakfast and gummies for lunch and the fact nobody's helping you, right? So it's this idea that we're going to, medicate women to tolerate bad situations. That's awfully Stepford, you know. Hello, Ira Levin. I think he wrote The Stepford Wives. You know, so so we have to be really careful about what we're treating. And we have to discuss the whole person and find out what's going on. And it could absolutely be two things. There could be you could be absolutely underappreciated and overworked in your household and have no time to spend half an hour a day going for a walk or maybe starting some resistance training, things that are going to make you feel better, be good for your bones, good for your balance. And you could also have hot flashes. So the answer to both could be the hormones can do this part, but they can't do this part. And those are hard conversations to have, right? But I think that's why it's important to be honest about what your treatment can do and also to ask people. It's amazing to me the number of people I talk to and they just, they can't get outside just to go for a walk. And there are all kinds of complex reasons that could happen and I'm not blaming anybody for that. We all get overworked. We all have, there are some people who are working three jobs, right? Like there are sometimes some really, you know, or they may live in a place where they don't feel safe going for a walk. So there's all different complex reasons that can play into that, but we shouldn't expect hormones to fix that part. If a, a man is listening to this, how can he show up better for his partner? Well, I think learning about what's going on, uh, educating yourself about what menopause is. Think about the division of labor in your household. You know, think about how are you contributing? Are you expecting somebody to do the grocery shopping, to make dinner, to clean up after dinner? You know, there's some there's a date there's a a new way of thinking about. Uh, decreased sexual desire that actually looks at the impact of heteronormative roles. So even in households where where men do more work, they often get to do the fun stuff. They get to play with the kids. They get to do the fun part of it. And it's the 
mother changing the diaper and cleaning up the dirty stuff and all that kind of stuff. So even when it's the amount of hours are the same, who gets to do the fun stuff and who gets to do the chores is often unequal. And I mean, if your whole day is spent just feeding and cleaning up urine and feces, there might be a lot of things you're not interested in, right? So I think it's just really important for people to think about how the labor in your household is divided, not just physically, but the emotional aspect of it, the fun aspect of it. And a relationship is a partnership. You know what? If there's times where your partner needs some help, I imagine there's times that the reverse might also be true as well. And so you want to kind of support the person and, you know, do what you can because hopefully this is the person that you love. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. This has been super interesting. Thank you so much, Dr. Jen Gunter. I think we'll have to carve out some time for a part two at some stage <laughs> if you're willing to come back and, and join us. Um, I love your passion. I love the fearless advocacy for women and helping them make better choices with their health. Thank you for the book, The Menopause Manifesto. I'm going to read that before I give that to my mother and I recommend everyone else gets that book and, and your other one is the vagina bible vagina bible yeah. there we go we'll put links to both in the show notes but if people would like to connect with you and learn more about what you're doing where can we send them yeah so you can find me on instagram at dr jen gunter you can find me well t- Twitter's dying a slow death but i'm still on twitter at dr jen gunter blue sky dr jen gunter tiktok dr jen gunter you kind of get the drill mm-hmm. and then i have a Substack which blog and it's called the vagenda Awesome. We uh, appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.